All right. Hey, if you have a Bible this morning, if you would find 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Thank you for the uh, flexibility and the room change. You know, we're feeling a little VBS-E today. Um, everybody like the cave you walk through to get into the room? That's so cool, isn't it? Man, I wish I was that clever and that creative. I'm totally not. Uh, but I'm thankful we have people in our church that are that creative. So uh, we are going to be in 1 Peter starting in chapter 1, verse 13. We have a lot to cover. I was so excited. I, we had the Southern Baptist Convention earlier this week, and so I got a little behind on sermon prep. So I spent a lot of time uh, Friday and Saturday looking at this text and studying it. And guys, I'm thrilled to, to be in the Word with you again this morning. We're going to continue our study through 1 Peter. Uh, by thinking about our calling as exiles. Hey, Jesse, I think there's a chair right behind Daniel if you want to find one. That'd be great, man. We learned last week, if you were here with us looking at the first 12 verses, uh, that we have an incredible treasure in the salvation of Jesus Christ. We've been born again to a living hope. And we learned last week that our time and various trials, things that we walk through that we might consider to be hard and suffering, those things are necessary and they're ultimately productive because they provide, they prove our faith and they provide a, a means for us to worship God. And finally, we saw our place in the story through the work of the prophets and the watching of the angels. Our life as Christians, our story in God's redemptive story is something for which angels long to look at and see. Today, we're going to continue from those foundational truths to some practical applications from Peter about living as an exile in a place that is not our home. So if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, there is a real sense in which this world that we live in is not your home. It will be one day when Christ comes and makes all things right. But as it, as it stands today, as it exists today, we live in a world that is not our home. Now, Christians over the last 2,000 years have existed in different cultures, in different places, in different times all around the world. We've lived in different social standings, in different historic periods, and we even have a variety of emphases that we lean into. So um, you may not know this. There are other churches in the world other than Baptist churches. You ever notice that? There are, there are other <laughs> heresy. <laughs> not at all. Uh, some of them, yes, but um, no, we have, we have brothers and sisters who are in Presbyterian churches and Assembly of God churches and Methodist churches, and uh, we have a rich diversity in the family of God that I don't think is necessarily the worst thing in the world. It's actually a, a good thing for us. So one of the guys who preached uh, this past week at the SBC said something like this, I'm thankful for our Presbyterian brothers' commitment to the glory of God. And they're a bunch of nerds, and they write a ton of books. So it's really helpful for us. So uh, you go look at my library, and I have a lot of Baptist authors. I have a ton of Presbyterian authors. Um, I'm thankful for the, the passion and fervor of our Methodist brothers and sisters to get the gospel out as quickly as they can. If you know the history of the Methodist movement of circuit riders going out into the, uh, the new world in America, you'll know that there's this passion for getting the gospel to those who've never heard. We need that. We need that emphasis. There's a, there's a great emphasis in our Assembly of God, brothers and sisters, for our dependence on the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We need all of these emphases. And for Baptists, our commitment to, to religious liberty and our commitment to congregational government, how we exist as the church, I think Baptists get right. That's why I'm a Baptist. 
But all Christians everywhere, throughout all time, throughout all cultures, and whatever denomination you're in, have massively important things in common. And today, we're going to see three things that all Christians are called to as they live in exile. So let's read our text together, and then we'll dive into it together. Starting in verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We're grateful because we know it has power and your spirit will use it this morning to change our lives. So God, I pray as we dive into the text this morning and see the ways in which you call us to live as Christians, God, would you help us to see rightly the calling that you give us, to hear rightly the calling that you give us, to believe rightly the calling that you give us, and to live rightly in response. Lord, help us to be holy people. Help us to fear you above all else, and help us to love one another well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, I have three calls for you and me as Christians uh, to respond to in faithfulness. All Christians everywhere are, are called in these three ways. We're called in more ways than this, but these three in particular, as Peter wants us to see this morning. So number one, we are called to holy living. We are called to holy living. And verse 13 starts with the word therefore, and you've heard me say this before. When you see a therefore in scripture, you should ask, what's the therefore therefore? Peter is reminding the reader of what we just read and studied last week that we've been born again to a living hope, that we're now called to live in light of our new life in Christ. We're called to holiness. Notice how Peter connects these two things together. He says in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So we, we talked last week about our living hope, our happy confidence, our happy certainty in the Lord. So we're called to set our hope fully on Jesus's grace, the grace of Christ that will be given to us in fullness at his return. 
Our hope, our faith is in Jesus and his grace toward us. But how do we show that hope to the world? How do we show the world that our hope is in Christ and not the world? Well, that's verses 14 and 15. Look again at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter calls us to have sober minds that are prepared for action. So look back at verse 13. Preparing your minds for action being sober-minded. Notice the, the fancy uh, English term for this, these two verbs, they're called participles, otherwise known as ing verbs, right? Being sober-minded, preparing your minds for action. This is not an English lesson, but you need to know this for, for this reason. Those two ideas, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, these are not one-time things. These are continuous actions. Christian, you don't just prepare your mind one time and then you're good for the rest of your life. No, being sober-minded and preparing for action is a continual practice. You and I have been called by God through Peter's writing to constantly have our minds ready to be holy. And that's the call that he gives us. Since we are now obedient children, we cannot be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. We're to be holy in all of our conduct, faithful to God and his commands in all of our conduct. Students, you once were in darkness, but now you're in light. You once were in ignorance, but now you have knowledge. You once were disobedient orphans, but now you're obedient children. You have been changed. You've been transformed. You've been made new. And Peter is calling us to be holy, as these new creations in Christ. He calls us to holiness in two ways. Negatively, by renouncing our former sins, so we stop doing that which dishonors the Lord, and positively, by imitating the one who called us. So we do things that Jesus did. We do things that God calls us to do. All of us renounce our former ignorance. Some of us have legitimate ignorance. We did not know the gospel at one point. We were in the dark. But what Peter is talking about specifically here are the passions of our former ignorance. That is our sinful desires and patterns. So before you became a Christian, even when you were a little kid, and you think, well, I didn't ever do anything bad. I was just seven years old before I came to Christ. Well, maybe that's true. But for all of us who recognize our sin, for all of us who recognize that we were born with sin, There are patterns and desires and temperaments in my heart and in your heart that if left to themselves will run us into the ground. We need to know those things so that we might put them to death. We might renounce our passions of our former ignorance. So how do we renounce those passions? Well, Christian, uh, you're going to live your life and you're going to recognize that that old nature within you still wars against you. Your flesh still wants the things of the world and not the things of God. And the mechanism that God has given you and me to renounce the passions of our former ignorance is confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Students, confessing your sin and repenting of your sin is not a bad thing. It's not something you do when you're in trouble. It's not something that you have to do as a a consequence for wrong actions. No, confession and repentance are gifts 
that God gives you and me to live holy lives, right? John tells us if, if we confess our sins one to another, then God is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how do we get forgiven? How do we get cleansing? We confess our sins to one another. So I hope and pray, just a simple application here. I hope and pray, whether it's your mom or your dad or a sibling or a loved one or a family member or a close friend or a pastor, as soon as you have to have someone in your life who knows you, who knows you not just in the way that you show yourself to the rest of the world, but knows those desires, knows those patterns, knows those temperaments in your heart that you can go to and say, I need to share with you what I'm struggling with. I need, to, I need to share with you and get you to pray for me for how I need to repent. We need those people in our lives. So we renounce our passions, but then we be holy in all our conduct. We look to Jesus and follow his example. We study the word and submit our lives to it. So no matter who you are or what your calling is as far as a job is concerned or where you go to school or who you might marry or what house you might live in, no matter what denomination you end up in or emphases you want to make in your faith as a Christian, you are called to be holy. You are called to be set apart, to be like Christ in the world, to, as we learned in summer retreat just a couple weeks ago, to shine as light in the darkness. But that holy living has another facet to it that we need to study together. And our call to holiness, this is our second point this morning, you are called to fear God. You're called to fear God. Most of us, many of us, maybe all of us know this, but it bears repeating. So listen close. God is not like you. God is not like me. He is utterly, infinitely transcendent. He is above us. He is other than us. He is utterly holy. He is the king of kings. He is God over all. He is infinitely just, and he is completely terrifying to those who disobey him. God is the infinitely righteous judge of creation, and he needs no one's approval, no one's help, no one's supplies, and no one's oversight. God is not like you. He's not like me. We're needy, right? Take away my oxygen and my water, my food and my shelter, I'm toast real quick. God has no needs. Here's the point. You and I never sit in judgment over God. He sits in judgment over you. We don't sit in judgment over God. We don't come to the scriptures and go, oh, well, I just don't, I really wish God didn't do these things or did these certain things. Or man, I, I wonder if God would act like this and not like this. Well, you don't sit in judgment over God. You don't get to decide what God ought to be like. God reveals himself to you as he sees fit. And our role, our responsibility is to receive him as he says he is. And what does he say here in 1 Peter verse 17? If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Translation. 
God will judge you and me according to our deeds, and there is nothing that has been hidden from him. He knows all, he sees all, and your holiness is not defined by what you allow others around you to see. No, holiness is measured by what God sees, and God sees all. But the good news of the gospel, student, is that Christians are not to relate to God by being afraid. Christians are not to relate to God with terror because his wrath has been poured out on Jesus for us. Peter tells us he ransomed us out of the futile ways of generations past. He sent Jesus to be the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice for us and for our sake. Verses 20 and 21 say, For our sake, God was revealed in Christ so that we might believe him and glorify him and place our faith and our hope in him. God sits in judgment over you not to pour his wrath on you, but now as a Christian, so that he might pour his love and his blessing and his delight on you. God loves you in Christ. He blesses you in Christ. But the point remains here in this text that we ought to conduct ourselves with fear. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? If if God loves me and has adopted me into his family and knows me and, and blesses me in Christ, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, student, let me just be clear. It doesn't mean that you're afraid of God. That might sound a little semantic. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, it doesn't mean being afraid. Well, doesn't fear mean be afraid? Well, not exactly. God is not some monster under your bed or a ghost hiding in your attic waiting for your vulnerable time to strike you and scare you. So don't think about fearing the Lord as the way you might fear a bump in the night when you're a child. We need to camp out here a bit because there's a a clear teaching in the New Testament that God removes our fears, right? Perfect love casts out fear. We've been given a spirit not of fear, but of confidence. And yet there's another teaching that calls us to fear God. So hold your place in 1 Peter. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. If you flip back, chances are you might hit the Psalms. Just go a couple pages later. You'll hit Isaiah chapter 11. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Tempted to use the Jason Cook. (laughs) If you need more time, say, hold up, brother. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Uh, This is a prophecy about the son of David, someone who comes up from the shoot of Jesse. So we know this passage that we're about to read is talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the one who will come to save us. So look at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The Messiah, you can flip back to 1 Peter. The, the Messiah, 
the Son of God, the Son of David, the one who will come full of the Spirit of the Lord, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. So how do we understand this? Well, there's a guy way smarter than me named Michael Reeves, and he has a really good book on the fear of the Lord. And I'm just going to try to distill some things I learned from him that I think will be helpful to you. There are two kinds of fear. Their first is what we call sinful fear. Sinful fear. This is a kind of fear that when you read Genesis chapter 3, you notice that Adam and Eve have. Sinful fear is a kind of fear that drives you, notice this, away from God and towards yourself. Sinful fear will drive you away from God and toward yourself. It's a kind of fear that will keep you holding tightly to your sin because you're afraid that you might be found out to be less holy than, you, than people think you are. It's a kind of fear that keeps you from submitting to the Lord in some area of your life because you'll be exposed in a certain way and you just can't stand that. So you'll run away from God and towards yourself. And in this world, in our culture that we live in, we see that sinful fear creep up in the chronic symptom of our whole culture, which is anxiety. Students, we, we've heard this before, that you and I were made to worship. Uh, there's one author says, you and I don't start or stop worship, we aim it. We're always worshiping something. And, and I would argue to you that we're also always fearing something. We're always fearing something. We're always being captivated and overwhelmed and trembling before something or someone. And when that something or someone isn't ultimately God, it is sinful fear. When we run from God, we will recoil at the weight of the world that we find ourselves trying to bear. So it's no wonder that the chronic symptom of our culture, a culture that has run from God and the things of God, is that they are crippled with anxiety. They're afraid. They're afraid of something or someone or some event taking place. And Christians are not immune from this kind of fear that causes us to cringe up with our sins and run away from God. But listen to Michael Reeves speak loud and clear from his book, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? It is the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God, such that they want to flee from God. The Spirit's work, listen to this, the Spirit's work is the exact opposite. To produce in us a wonderful fear that wins and draws us to God. So then, what is this fear that Peter is calling us to? It's not sinful fear. It's not a kind of fear that leads us away from God. No, it's right Fear. It's this right response to the Lord for who he is and what he's done. It's an awesome, trembling disposition that causes us to lean into his arms. In other words, hang with me, to fear the Lord is to love the Lord. Now, I love God. I also love my wife. I also love my dog, right? I can say I love all three of those things, but the content of my love, the essence of my love depends upon the object that I'm loving. So 
Do I love my dog the same way I love my wife? No. I love my dog. But he's replaceable. My wife is not replaceable. I've made a covenant commitment to this one woman for till death do us part. I haven't made that commitment with my dog. Okay? Doesn't mean I don't love my dog. I love my dog. But I love my wife. And the object of my love, the object of my affection will cause the essence of my love to be different. I love my wife. I love God. And God is infinitely holy and infinitely righteous and infinitely good. And I do not deserve anything from him but his wrath. I've sinned against him over and over and over. I've committed treason against him over and over and over. And so because of his love for me, because of his holiness and right standing and who he is and what he's done, my response to him, my love for him will be an awful, using the old meaning of that word, full of awe, trembling, overwhelming, fearful love. It's full of joy and ecstasy and a little bit of nervousness that's passionate and animating and leads me to act accordingly in his loving presence. It's, it's not a perfect analogy, but think if, if you and I went on a hike, if we had the capacity to do this, and we all went on a hike and we went up to the top, the summit of Mount Everest, and we made it to the top, and we're looking down going, we up here. And we look around and we see this beautiful vista of God's creation, something that very few people have laid their eyes upon. You are full of joy. You are full of excitement. You are terrified. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's, it's similar that when we stand before God, who, let me remind you, is always with us, we always are standing before God. We recognize that we are in the presence of something that brings out utter delight and yet causes us to tremble. And so we're called to live our lives in fear of God, not a fear that makes us afraid of him, like he's going to attack us or scare us, but a fear that leads us to faithfulness, to joy, to love. And that leads us into our last calling this morning. Not only are we called to holy living, to fear God. Number three, and we'll fly through this. We're called to love others. We're called to love others. Look with me again at verse 22. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We've looked at ourselves and seen that God has called us to holy living. We've looked up at God and seen that we've been called to fear him. And we're now looking around at each other and seeing that God has called us to love others. Our new life in Christ, our purified souls by the work of Jesus, they produce in us sincere brotherly love. So then, Peter says, love one another. If, if Christ is producing in you love, well then love one another. 
Who is the one referring to here? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Well, immediately, we need to just read the text as it says. It's referring to exiles in this world. The one another in this passage is referring specifically to the church. It's referring specifically to the exiles around the world that we call brothers and sisters. Now, we know that this is not in conflict with the great commandment to love your God with all that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is every other image bearer in the world. But Peter is emphasizing in this passage the love for our brothers and sisters because, guys, we, we need the love of our brothers and sisters to survive in this exile. We need the love of our brothers and sisters in the faith to continue in this world that is not our home. So why do we love one another? Well, we need to be clear before we answer that that loving others is hard. I don't need to convince you of that. You know that. There are people in your immediate family that are hard to love. There are friends that you have made in school that are hard to love. There are people in this youth group that for you are hard to love. It's way easier to love yourself. Way easier. And it's way easier to enter into relationships for this purpose. That person can give me something that I want. Whether it's status or opportunity or to be seen with them. It's way easier to be nice to others so that we're seen in a certain way. That's not love, that's self-love. We need to be clear that some people are just hard to love. God has seen fit in his wisdom and providence to put you, put you people in this youth ministry with other people that seem sovereignly ordained to know how to push your buttons. That's not an accident. It's not an accident that this group of people are in this youth ministry at this time, right? It's not like, oh man, Lord, you just let that one slide through. Like, God's not surprised by the makeup of this group. This is, on a, this is for a purpose. This is on purpose. This is for a reason. So how can we be motivated to love, really die to ourselves for the sake of other brothers and sisters? Well, Peter tells us in verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. You've been made alive through the word of God. So more than affinity, more than common interests, more than money or status or relationships or anything else in this world, what will actually sustain this call that you've received to love others? Peter thinks it's the word of God. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take the word of God to sustain you. And Peter emphasizes this point by quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 that all flesh and its glory, all the things of this world are like grass and flowers. We see them, we notice them, but they wither and die. But the word remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached. This gospel that you and I believe and that gospel motivates us exiles to love one another well in this life. Because Christ loved us when we were unlovable. When we were not lovely, he loved us. And he died for us. So now we live with new life because of that gospel. And because that sincere brotherly love is produced in us through that gospel, we can now love the people who are hard to love. We need the Spirit of Christ 
if we're ever to love our brothers and sisters well. But good news, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. God will not call you to do something that he will not equip you to do. And if he's calling you to love, hard to love brothers and sisters, he has given you a spirit that is able, able to be faithful. We're called to holy living. We're called to fear God. We're called to love each other. And those callings have no expiration date. That's a calling that you will live in for eternity. In eternity, those things will remain. You will live holy lives. You will fear God. You will love your brothers and sisters. And we will know with certainty in that day, in the last day, that all of these callings are for God's glory and for our immeasurable joy. So my hope for you is that you would believe God's word now and begin to live in that joy with your brothers and sisters while we live in this exile together. Let me pray. God in heaven, we're humbled. We come before you as needy people. God, I know the sins of my own heart. I know the desires of my heart and the the foolishness of my my mind that, that loves to run towards the darkness and not the light. Lord, I pray that you might help me to live holy life. Lord, I know that oftentimes the fear of man, of being seen in a certain way, is the supreme fear in my heart and life. That is wickedness. Lord, I pray that sinful fear would be rooted out of my heart and replaced with a godly fear of you, a fear that causes me to tremble, but to tremble with joy. And Lord, I confess that There are people in my life that are hard to love. It's easier to ignore them or to remain superficial with them or to spend my time promoting my own needs, my own desires, my own wants. Lord, let it be said of me that he loves others well. Lord, I pray first for my own soul. Lord, I know that I am needy and frail and broken. And I pray that my brothers and sisters in this room would join me in that prayer. That God, we need the work and power of your spirit to produce in us holiness, to produce in us fear, to produce in us sincere brotherly love. Would you do that among your people today? As we gather around and discuss what we've heard, would you let it be for your glory and for our good? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.